Why Catholic is made possible by generous patrons. If you're blessed by this podcast, consider supporting it by purchasing something from the Why Catholic merch shop on Etsy. Link is in the show notes. Original designs on sweatshirts, t-shirts, hats, decals, and more. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear how you can get a special discount. Thanks for supporting Why Catholic. My friend Ken recently told me a story about his grandson. His grandson had just gotten a brand new basketball as a gift. The next Sunday after Mass, he was out in the parking lot dribbling his basketball. That kid loved that basketball. Suddenly, they noticed that the child had disappeared from the parking lot, and so they began wondering where he went. A few minutes later, my friend's grandson came out of the church carrying his basketball. They asked him where he went and why did he take his basketball into the church? His response was simply this. I wanted to show Jesus my new basketball. Hi, this is Justin Hibbert, and you're listening to Why Catholic, my podcast about the what and why of Catholicism. We're beginning a new series today on Catholic ethos. Ethos means the characteristic spirit of a community as manifested in its beliefs. We're going to discuss phrases and ideas that are common in Catholicism that correspond to Catholic ethos, terms you're likely to hear commonly used in Catholic circles, but maybe don't often get explained as much as they should. And for this episode, I want to talk about the phrase, faith-seeking understanding. When my friend Ken told me that story about his grandson and his basketball, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I couldn't stop thinking about it because that little child has a faith that I wish I had. If you heard my story, which you can listen to in episode 11, you'll recall that there was one thing, one theological concept that was the biggest hurdle for me in becoming Catholic, and that was the Eucharist. I just could not wrap my head around how bread and wine become the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus. I didn't know how that worked. It made no sense in my mind, and it really frustrated me because I had overcome all the other theological hurdles on my way to Catholicism, but I couldn't get past that one. It was during a Bible study where we were studying 1 Samuel chapters 4 through 6, which tells the story of the Philistines stealing the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark caused all sorts of weird phenomena and illnesses to befall the Philistines. At the end of our Bible study, a woman asked, is the Ark God or is it a symbol? And as I mulled over her question, I realized that the Ark couldn't be just a symbol because symbols don't make people sick and symbols don't kill people. And just when that thought had crossed my mind, I remembered something Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, where he warned the church at Corinth that many of them had profaned the body and blood of Jesus during communion. And for that reason, many were sick and some had even died. That connection between the Ark of the Covenant and communion made me realize that the Eucharist wasn't merely a symbol like I'd always believed, but a profound theophany of sorts, an injection of the presence of God. The other day, I was talking with someone at church and they said, Aren't you that guy that studied the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant and became convinced of the Eucharist? I said, yeah, that was me. He was really impressed. But when I consider that kid with the basketball, I'm rather embarrassed at the amount of theological knowledge it took to convince me of something a little child is able to believe, especially when you consider how explicit Jesus is in passages like John chapter 6 in making that connection between the bread and wine and his flesh and blood. Ken's grandson doesn't have an ounce of the theological background I have, but his faith was far more evident than mine. And even now that I believe in Jesus' real presence of the Eucharist, even after all the episodes I've done in the podcast on the Eucharist, specifically episodes 9, 10, 14, 15, and 16, I think this kid still has a stronger faith than I do. I was thinking about it in Mass the other day. Do I really believe that the Eucharist is the real presence of Jesus? And if so, then why am I not just in tears in every Mass? Why am I not running over to the tabernacle to show Jesus my equivalent of a basketball? 
In episode 67, I interviewed Father Colin Nunez, a Melkite Catholic priest. Melkites are a part of Eastern Catholicism. He mentioned how his three-year-old son loves going forward for communion and recognizes in his three-year-old way that he is receiving Jesus. In the Eastern Catholic traditions, they perform all three sacraments of initiation together, baptism, confirmation, and first communion. Whereas in the Western Catholic tradition, baptism is given as early as possible. However, first communion and confirmation are withheld until the child is able to receive some instruction on the topics and can have a basic understanding of the sacraments. It varies from diocese to diocese, but a common practice is for first communion to occur around age 8 and confirmation around 12 or 13. There's all sorts of opinions on the matter. I've heard a number of Roman Catholic priests make the case that we should be doing it like the Eastern churches do it. On one hand, I can see the wisdom in making sure an individual has some understanding of the sacraments they are going to enter into. There's definitely prudence in that. For example, the church doesn't act like a Vegas wedding chapel for a couple that decides they want to get married on the spot. And becoming a priest or a deacon is a long and dedicated process. It's important people have a level of maturity and understanding before entering those sacraments. On the other hand, a recent Pew study found that 70% of Catholics in America do not believe in the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. In other words, their faith pales in comparison to those little boys I've mentioned who likely would go to war with you if you tried to tell them that Jesus wasn't really present at communion. It got me thinking about my time as a Protestant pastor. In the Baptist churches I pastored, we believed that baptism was a symbolic ritual. But even so, we had very specific rules as to who could be baptized. In order to be baptized, one had to articulate a confession of faith, explaining how they came to accept Jesus as their Savior. And they had to articulate a good reason for wanting to be baptized. There was this one occasion when a sister and her younger brother met with me in order to make their case for being baptized. The older sister articulated her case convincingly. Her younger brother struggled. I went back to the parents and said, I don't think your son's ready to be baptized. They pushed back, telling me that at home, he exhibited a more mature faith than his sister, and that perhaps the reason he was struggling was because he was nervous and maybe didn't know how to quite articulate the depth of what he believed. I asked the parents to join us, and I interviewed him again, and they helped prompt him to put his faith into words, and I agreed to baptize him. But I can remember at least one other instance where I told a child that he wasn't ready to be baptized. And as I think back on it, I think I did that child a real disservice. I was looking for understanding when I really should have been looking for faith. I think most Christian traditions withhold certain practices from very young children because they want to make sure the individual quote-unquote understands in some way what is happening. And I think that's appropriate at times. However, I also think that children have a capacity for faith in ways that adults struggle with. Hearing about my friend's grandson run to the tabernacle to show Jesus his basketball is a far more powerful lesson for me about the Eucharist than a lengthy dissertation about the premise of transubstantiation. The synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all record Jesus telling his disciples, unless you become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. What did he mean by that? Should we act childish? No, Jesus was instructing his disciples on what pure, genuine faith looks like. It looks like a kid running up to the tabernacle in order to show Jesus a basketball. It looks like a three-year-old excitedly walking up to receive the Eucharist because he knows he's receiving Jesus. I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy. Quote, Because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again, and the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony, 
But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. The repetition in nature may not be a mere occurrence. It may be a theatrical encore. End quote. I absolutely love that phrase. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our father is younger than we. It's absolutely counterintuitive and simultaneously brilliant. It's one of those backward principles that makes the kingdom of God so unique. Our heavenly father having the eternal appetite of infancy and being younger than us is akin to something like the meek, not the powerful, will inherit the earth. Jesus didn't say, if you have a theological knowledge of a mustard seed, you can move the mountains. No, he said, if you have faith like a mustard seed, you can move mountains. On the surface, it seems counterintuitive, but doesn't it make complete sense? Sometimes you can be the most brilliant theologian, yet lack faith. In my case, even after I formulated a theological understanding of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist, there still came this need to submit to it, to say, I believe, or at least I want to completely believe. Take a listen to this fantastic story in Mark 9, 14 through 27. Quote, when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. When the whole crowd saw Jesus, they were immediately overcome with awe and they ran forward to greet him. He asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son. He has a spirit that makes him unable to speak, and whenever it seizes him, it dashes him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid, and I asked your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do so. Jesus answered them, You faithless generation, how much longer must I be among you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. When the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood, it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you are able to do anything, have pity on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you are able, all things can be done for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You spirit that keeps this boy from speaking and hearing, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he was able to stand. End quote. Notice what the father said. I believe, help my unbelief. Let me put his statement another way. I have faith, help me understand. St. Anselm, the father of modern scholasticism, said, Credo unt intelligem, which is Latin for, I believe so that I may know. Or to put it another way, faith seeking understanding. This is an ethos of Catholicism. In Christianity, we are asked to believe a lot of far-fetched ideas. God created the universe. God became man. He was born of a virgin. He healed lifelong disabilities, and he rose from the dead. 
I love the way my wife put it. She said, I don't understand why people struggle with the idea of the real presence of Jesus in the Eucharist. They believe in the virgin birth and the resurrection after all. When she put it that way, I was like, yeah, I guess we do believe in some pretty outrageous things. And when I think back on my life, I realized that I believed them long before I could articulate a theological understanding of them. There's a story about a world-renowned theologian who was an incredibly astute author, lecturer, and debater who could go on for hours about minute theological details. One day, one of his students raised his hand and asked, Professor, you've studied all of this theology. What is the most profound theological concept that you've ever had to wrestle with? The professor paused for a second, and then he began to sing. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. The students chuckled, but the professor was being serious. How can we make sense of this idea that God, the creator of the universe, loves us enough to die for us? We can formulate all sorts of theological ideas, but at the end of the day, it comes down to having faith. Hebrews 11.1 1 defines faith as, quote, confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, end quote. Faith is hope. Faith is that father saying, Jesus, I have hope that you can heal my son even though I don't understand. Faith is singing, Jesus loves me even when we don't feel like we deserve to be loved. Faith is when just before communion, we say, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. This is why the sacraments are acts of faith. What profound faith it takes to go into a confessional and reveal your deepest, darkest, most embarrassing sins. And why do you do it? You do it because you hope for forgiveness and healing. A lot of people, including myself at times, put understanding ahead of faith. We want to know all the answers before we make that leap. This was my experience becoming Catholic. And one day I just said, I've read and listened to who knows how much Catholic material. I need to go to Mass and immerse myself in this in order to better understand. Faith is what's asked of us, even when we don't understand. I'm sure Abraham had all sorts of questions going through his head on his way to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice, but God didn't ask Abraham to understand. He asked him to have faith. I'll share with you something very personal. A few months ago, I mentally hit a wall. I've been in the sales business for 10 years, and I suddenly felt like I had no passion for it anymore. I think it was a combination of things. My boss, some company situations I've had over the past few years, as well as maybe a change of heart. Who knows? Maybe it's a midlife crisis. I felt like God was calling me to serve his church in some way. I just had no idea what that way looked like. Out of the blue one day, while I was in the midst of this mental wrestling, I got a call from a friend at church. He said, Justin, this is a long shot, but we've been thinking that we need someone to help our priests in meeting with families and making sure that they are connected and invested in our community. He said, as we were talking about who to hire, we thought you'd be the perfect person for this given your background. By any chance, is this something you might even be interested in? I said, boy, your timing is impeccable. There was just one problem. It was going to require a serious pay cut. I nearly dismissed it on that account. But the more I thought about it, the more I said, this is what I'm supposed to do. I can figure out all the other stuff about money, but this is clearly God answering that question, how should I serve the church? Having just made the shift, it feels a little intimidating. I don't have all the answers as to how I can make up some of the income I've left behind. When I think about that, I get a little anxious and nervous. But when I remember this is what I hoped for in that season of wrestling, I realize that this is exactly where I'm meant to be. Now that we've talked about faith, we need to talk about the other part of this phrase, faith seeking understanding. Faith is where we need to begin. And while we should have a childlike faith, we shouldn't be content with a 
childish faith. What faith-seeking understanding includes is a move towards maturity, and a mark of maturity is seeking knowledge and understanding. Think about it in terms of love. Sometimes we are overcome with our feelings for another person. Is there anything more captivating than new love? But our feelings, our hope that they are the dream come true, should not stop us from learning about the person for whom we have these feelings. Our love needs to grow to maturity. If a friend told us that they've fallen in love and we ask them, what do you love about this person? Tell me about them. And then we find out that they know next to nothing about the person. Well, that would cue us in on the fact that they're likely more infatuated than truly in love. There's an invitation in that father's expression, I believe, help my unbelief. He's asking Jesus to help him understand Jesus's power as the great physician. First Peter 3.15 tells us to, quote, always be prepared to give a reason to everyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have, end quote. If someone asked you, why do you go to mass or why do you go to confession or why do you believe that Jesus is present in the Eucharist? Would you be able to answer them? I am convinced that so many leave the Catholic Church for either a lack of a relationship with Jesus or a lack of understanding of their own faith. I can't tell you how many Protestants I've heard who were former Catholics criticize the Catholic faith by absolutely butchering it with complete misunderstanding of basic Catholic theology. It is clear that they were poorly formed in their Catholic upbringing. We need faith, that relationship of hope and trust in Jesus, and we also need understanding. Faith is our starting point, hoping in God, clinging to him, running up to him and showing him our proverbial basketball. But then we seek to understand what it is about Jesus that compels us to him, that demands our affection, that draws us to believe he's there, body, blood, soul, and divinity in the Eucharist. When people ask us why we have that hope in someone we cannot see, we're ready with an answer because our faith is the most important subject we could ever seek to understand. But in our pursuit for understanding, for knowledge, let us never abandon that appetite for infancy. Let us never lose that sense of wonder. Let us never think we're too grown up to run to Jesus and show him our basketball. Thank you for joining me for Why Catholic. Be sure to subscribe to Why Catholic wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also subscribe to my Substack site and get the next episode in your email inbox. As a subscriber, you get a special discount code to the Why Catholic Etsy store. If you've been blessed by this podcast and you're feeling generous, there's also a way to financially support it. And patrons get some extra perks. To become a free subscriber or a patron, just go to whycatholic.substack.com slash subscribe. Also join me on Instagram at whycatholicpodcast, all one word. Thanks again for listening. My name is Justin Hibbard, and this is Why Catholic. God bless you.